Hello, and welcome to the Kingdom Corner Podcast, where you can propel your faith into even deeper levels as we discuss how to live the kingdom culture on earth as it is in heaven, just as Jesus prayed. Here's your host, the great Matt Geib. Good day, good day, Kingdom Corner Podcast followers and devotees. The great Matt Geib with you on a wonderful sunny afternoon here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, we are really winding down the summer now. It's the last week in August, and we're turning a new page here at the Kingdom Corner. We're going to start a new series that I am very, very excited about. We're going to talk about the book of Psalms. We're going to spend some time going through the Psalms. I'm not sure that we'll teach every psalm there is, because there's 150 of them, and yet we will touch on a number of them. I, I just really love this class. I've started to study it. I've taught it a little bit already uh, in another um, in-person class, and this is my introduction to psalms today. Now, we said we recently finished um, the book of Philippians, which one scholar said uh, could be called God's primer to a joy-filled life. So I will, you know, kind of steal his title and say Psalms is God's primer on how to worship, how to praise, and how to pray. That's God's primer is the Psalms, how to worship, how to pray, how to praise. Now, Psalms, I'm going to give you, I, I just want you to stop and think about this for a while, and when we start to get into this introduction, we'll have the answers for you, but I'm going to start you out with a, a quiz that I put together on the book of Psalms and see what you can, uh, how, you, how you would do on it. If you were to take your Bible right now, uh, just a regular Bible without a lot of um, study notes in the back like a Thompson chain has, and you were to take your thumb and you were to evenly divide it down the middle, what book do you think you would come up with? That's the first question. What is the book that's at the center of your Bible? In talking about the Psalms, what is the longest chapter in the book of Psalms? I'm just going to let you think about this and answer it. What is the shortest chapter? in the book of Psalms, and there could be possibly two answers on this one. There were many, many authors of the Psalms. Can you name three authors of the book of Psalms? Here's, here's some harder questions. What three passages in the epistles mention the Psalms in operation in the church for edification? What three passages in the epistles, the New Testament uh, epistles mention the Psalms in operation in the church for edification. And then I'm going to give you some extra credit. These are a little extra hard. There are two verses in the New Testament Gospels which mention the Psalms as prophetic of Christ. Can you name those verses? What two verses in the New Testament Gospels mentioned Psalms as a prophetic word of Christ. Can you, can you jot those two verses down? And then what passage, this is the last one, this is extra hard, I think, 
what passage in the New Testament mentioning Psalms is prophetic of Judas' betrayal of Christ? What passage in the New Testament mentioning Psalms is prophetic of Jesus, I'm sorry, Judas's betrayal of Christ? All right, that's the Psalms quiz that I came up with for my class. Um, you know, now I'm going to get into the rest of the introduction, and you, I'll, I'll be giving you some of the answers. But you, you could, you could actually shut this um, recording off for a few minutes and see how well you can answer these questions. So we're going to get started with this introduction now. The book at the center of your Bible, if you split it in half, and I'm talking about just a regular Bible, not with a lot of study notes in it like the Thompson chain, if you were to split it in half, you'd pretty much come up with the book of Psalms. The chapter in the very center of your Bible is Psalm 118, the very center chapter of the Bible. Um, that Bible scholars would say was the center chapter of the Bible is Psalm 118. The fact can be argued depending on what Bible version you are using, but by most re reckoning, the very center of the Bible when measured by chapter count is Psalm 118. Let me read that to you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, His mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, His mercy endures forever. Isn't that interesting? So the center of the Bible says, His mercy, wow, His love and mercy endure forever. Now, I said Psalm 118, a lot of scholars say it's the middle chapter of the Bible. Well, there are some scholars who argue and say Psalm 117 is the chapter that's the center of the Bible. However, notwithstanding, Psalm 117 is the shortest chapter in God's Word. Psalm 117 is the shortest chapter. Psalm 118, which we just read, uh, is the very center chapter of the Bible. Psalm 117 is our shortest chapter in God's Word. Let's read this one. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Hmm, that's a good chapter. Here are some other facts surrounding both Psalm 117 and 118. The longest chapter of the Bible falls just after this center chapter. That would be Psalm 119. The shortest chapter in the Bible falls just after this center chapter, Psalm 117. There are exactly 594 chapters before Psalm 118 and exactly 594 chapters after it. Isn't that interesting? When you add the number of chapters before Psalm 118 and those after, the sum of those numbers is 1,118, and the very center verse at the heart of your Bible, at the center of your Bible, listen to this, is Psalm 118.8. So um, let's read that again. There are exactly 594 chapters before Psalm 118, exactly 594 chapters after it. 
when you add the number of chapters before Psalm 118, and then those after that psalm, the sum total is 1,118. If you compute that into a verse, the verse at the very center of your Bible then is Psalm 118.8. Let's read that. The very center verse of God's Word, Psalm 118.8 says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah, that's the center of the Bible. Take trust, trust in the Lord. Don't trust in man. Uh, is a good way of saying it, to paraphrase it. In following history, this verse is 3,500 years after creation and 3,500 years about till the close of the millennium. That is in the center of time. This center verse of the Bible reminds us believers to ask the question, are you centered in your trust in God? It is a particular verse that reminds Christians to trust in God over trusting in themselves or other people. As Christians understand, God consistently provides for us and His grace is given to us freely. Even in the most difficult times, we must center ourselves by trusting in God. He is there making us strong, giving us joy, and carrying us when life weighs heavily upon us. Psalm 119 has 176 verses and is the longest chapter in, in, your, in, the, in the Bible, okay? And the biggest book, of course, in Psalms, or the biggest psalm in Psalms. The theme is the Word of God. And what makes uh, Psalm 119 interesting is there are 22 stanzas. And uh, in, in the Hebrew, the stanza is eight verses, or eight uh, in that language, eight verses. Or I think even in the English language would be eight uh, verses of, um, or eight passages, eight, eight statements, we could say, is a stanza. Each stanza starts with, Uh, each stanza starts with a diff different Hebrew letter. Each each of the twenty-two stanzas. Okay, if you multiply twenty-two by eight, you get one hundred and seventy-six. One hundred and seventy-six verses, twenty-two stanzas. Um, that's an interesting fact. Uh, the 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 chapter of Psalm one nineteen itself is. Um, equivalent to the size of the some books in the New Testament, Philippians and James. Uh, it's equivalent to the size of Ruth. So it's a very um, good-sized chapter, and it compares to some whole books in the Bible. We could say that Psalm 119 celebrates God's Word and instructions to His people. Okay? And there's a lot more. We'll get into Psalm 119. I think we will be one of the psalms we look into. We may not be able to study the whole Psalm 119, but we will see. Some more thoughts about the psalms. The psalms refer to the 150 songs under the title in the English Old Testament, sometimes called the Psalter. From the Greek Psalterian, or Psalmy 1, or Psalmy 1st, used in the Greek translation and version of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint. 
so called for the Septuagint, so called for seven translations from Hebrew to the Greek. Um, designation or designated also or often, I should say, under uh, under seventy and date, you know, seventy translations, seventy, and dating back from three hundred to two hundred BC, dating back from three hundred to two hundred BC. The Old Testament had three main sections or breakdown of books, the Law, the Prophets, and what we're going to study now, the Psalms. Each psalm could be, could be said to be an individual song because they were all really put to music. Okay, The psalms' subject matter is without limit. The psalms are greatly varying forms of poetry. They're, they're not only songs, but they're also poetry. The book of Psalms stands between the Old and New Covenants. Some psalms spanned a thousand-year period, a thousand-year period, as between Moses and Hezekiah. The psalms show us the central theme of God's Word, which is His Son, Jesus Christ. Psalms is a spiritual songbook standing between the cherubim. You know, they put that in between the cherubim, they put the law and the prophets, all those books uh, to put in the Ark of the Covenant. Psalms is loaded with the experiences of Jesus and his church. We can read that into it. It speaks of that typologically, right? It's not just um, history words. Psalms show to us God's mercy, love, and judgment. Psalms is for all men in all times and all seasons. It never gets old. It's always relevant. It's the kind of book you can open today and get so much out of, and then open next week if you're reading elsewhere in the Bible, and those same Psalms will speak something differently to you. The whole Bible is like that, really. It's always a new book. When we open it up with an open heart, with a humble heart, with a heart that's hungry for God. In a nutshell, the Psalms is devotional a devotional, through which Jesus wants to speak to us. That's what we're depending on here in the Kingdom Corner podcast right now. Lord, we ask you to open these psalms to those that listen today, tomorrow, in the future, and speak to them. Speak to them, Jesus. Speak to them and confirm to them things that you're, you're putting in their hearts and minds. In the end, each of us is writing our own personal psalms. You're all writing your own personal psalm in your life, be it one of joy and victory and happiness, or maybe one of defeat, you know, or one coming from defeat into victory, right? Psalms are useful as the Christian hymnal to assist us in our praise to God. The Christian's prayer book, in which we learn how to pray and approach God in prayer. The Christian's book of evidences to strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ. Psalms are useful, finally, as the Christian's training guide for living holy, righteous lives before God. There's a lot of instruction in the Psalms. Yes, it's songs. Yes, it's poetry. But there's also a lot of, a lot of instruction. Let's look at some reasons to study the Psalms. As Christians, we are commanded to utilize the Psalms. Speaking to one another in Psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, Ephesians 5.19. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Colossians 3.16 Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. James 5.13 There's an answer to part of our quiz. I asked that question on the first page of how the psalms were referenced in the epistles. There's your answer right there. Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, James 5.13. All righty, let's go on. So the psalms are useful for singing praises to God, like we've said, but they're also useful for teaching and confirming that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. Note the use Jesus made of them. Let's read these verses. Jesus made use of these. He made reference to them. Luke 24, 44 to 47. Then he said to them, These words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Verse 46, then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And the repentance, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now you can read these Psalms for your reference later. I'm going to give you a, a long list of Psalms here that are prophetic of the Christ, that speak of Christ, that speak of his ministry, that speak of some of his sufferings. Psalm 2, 1 to 12. Psalm 2, 1 to 12. Psalm 16, 9 to 11. Psalm 16, 9 to 11. Psalm 22, 1 to 31. Psalm 22, 1 to 31. Psalm 40, 6 to 8. Psalm 69, 1 to 36. Psalm 69, 1 to 36. Psalm 72, 1 to 20. Psalm 72, 1 to 20. Psalm 88, 1 to 18. Psalm 88, 1 to 18. Psalm 109, 4 to 20. Psalm 109, 4 to 20. Psalm 110, 1 to 7. Psalm 110, verses 1 to 7. Psalm 118, 22. Psalm 118, 22. All right, you can go to the show notes, and this will be in there as well, if you didn't get that all written down. Also, Peter uses them in the, his first gospel sermon, Acts 2, 25 to 28, and verses 34 to 35. Acts 2, 25 to 28, and 34 to 35. Let me read that. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. 
you will make me full of joy in your presence. So there's Peter quoting a Psalm of David right there in Acts 2. Um, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 16, 8 to 11, and 73, Psalm 73, 23. Psalm 16, 8 to 11, and Psalm 73, 23. All right? So there's another answer from the quiz. You know, how was uh, the Psalms prophetically mentioned by Jesus? You know, Jesus mentioned them. Okay? The aim of this study, let's go on. The aim of this study, it is my prayer as we begin to study this book, we will accomplish these goals to become more familiar with the Old Testament poetry. The Psalms is also a book of poetry. This is essential to getting more out of the Psalms and important if we are to avoid avoid misinterpreting them. Number two, to develop an appreciation and working knowledge of the Psalms. That is, so one may utilize them for his or own, own comfort and encouragement. It's a very good devotional book for that. Also in counseling and comforting others. Number three, glean a clearer picture of God's character. That is, we want to better understand his love, mercy, deliverance towards the righteous, but also his wrath and judgment against the wicked. Let's look at another point. Point number four, to learn more of Christ the Christ in prophecy, to note descriptions of his suffering and glorious reign that we find in the Psalms, some of which are not found elsewhere in Scripture. Consider examples, number, I'd say this is number five, consider examples of fulfilled prophecies. We will see in fulfilled prophecy irrefutable arguments for the inspiration of Scripture's and for the claim that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And number six, we will do study, this study, in two ways. We're going to study the Psalms in two ways. A, individual Psalms. B, taking a theme, like an individual Psalm. One of the Psalms I have already worked up that I've just been lost in for the last couple weeks is Psalm 8. It's only nine verses, but wow, does it pack some power. And of course, I believe what we're going to start out with, though, before we get into Psalm 8, is Psalm 1 and 2. But Psalm 8 is powerful. Psalm 1 and 2 are powerful also. Uh, The other thing that we'll do, that's A, we're going to study individual psalms. B, we'll take a theme like praise, fear, uh, judgment, and we'll study it throughout the book of Psalms. Uh, That's two ways that we're going to study the book. I'm so excited about it. I want to let you right now know that we're not necessarily going to study in order Psalms 1 through 150. I don't know that we could, unless we uh, committed to study from now until the end of time, I'm not sure we'd get through it anyway. But I'm going to highlight different Psalms. And uh, if you come on the podcast, if you write me an email and you have a certain Psalm you want us to study, then send it to me and I'll look into it. We'll look into it together. Let me give you some more reasons to study the Psalms. The Psalms show characteristics of Hebrew poetry. This is such a beautiful thing. If we can get a hold of and grasp 
what the he Hebrew writers, the Hebraic language, was trying to get across. It's such a more beautiful and picturesque language than I think our English language is. It's part of the poetic books of Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Psalms, Song of Solomon. A lot of poetry here. Before we get into the background of the Psalms themselves, it may be beneficial to consider some things about Hebrew poetry. Not only will this help to better understand the nature of the psalm or the psalm studied, but it can also assist in proper interpretation of that portion of Scripture. Note, wherein the English language of poetry does have a clear rhyme and meter, there is not a clear consensus on the real flavor of Hebraic poetry. In other words, the Hebrew form of poetry doesn't follow rhyme and meter like our poetry does. Maybe in an instance it does here and there, but it really doesn't flow that way. It doesn't have that flavor. Hebrew is a fluid language, and the poetry we are speaking of the Hebrew language, there are five different meanings or shades of meanings that the scholars have uh, chosen out that we can see uh, that use the uh, Hebraic language in a poetic way. Five basic forms of poetry uh, that make Hebrew poetry different from like our own poetry would be. Uh, the very first thing I'll say is Hebrew language, especially in the these five books of poetry in the Bible, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, use thought rhyme. They're always rhyming thoughts, if you can get that in your mind. Not words, but thoughts. Rhyming a thought. We'll get into that. It's also called parallelism. Thought rhyme, thought rhyme, to rhyme a thought involves arranging thoughts in relationship to each other. Arranging thoughts in relationship to each other. This is done without a concern as to whether the words themselves rhyme. I've already told you that. Um, as, as our poetry in the English language, uh, that's the intent most of the time in our English language. In the Psalms, we find several different kinds of rhyme. This is beautiful. Several different kinds. Synonymous parallelism, number one. Synonymous parallelism. The thought of the first line is repeated in the second line. It's expressed, though, in different words for the sake of emphasis. Let's look at a good example of this in Psalm 24, 2. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. See the same idea, but said in a different wor words. Founded on the seas, established on the waters is the second phrase. Now the second form of parallelism would be antithetical parallelism. Antithetical parallelism. parallelism. The truth presented in one line is further strengthened by a contrasting, you know, almost opposite statement in the next line. Consider this example from Psalm 1-6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, okay, he knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Note the contrast. You know, makes you think, doesn't it? You know, the righteous are blessed, but boy, if you're not righteous, you're going to be judged, right, or perish. Let's look at the third type of parallelism. Synthetic parallelism. The first and second lines bear some definite relation to each other. First and second lines bear relationship to each other. 
such as cause and effect or proposition and conclusion. Here is a good example, Psalm 119.11. Your word have I hidden in my heart. That's the cause. What's the effect? The next line, that I might not sin against you, right? The cause, I've hidden your word in my heart. The effect will be, I won't sin against you. Let's look at the fourth form of parallelism, progressive parallelism. There are several varieties of this form, the most common being stair-like parallelism, composed of several lines, each providing a complete element of the aggregate or composite thought. Let's look at Psalm 1-1 in regard to this. This is like a staircase, a stair-stepping, you know, uh, stepping into a further revelation or further depth of a thought. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the seat of sinners, or the path of sinners. I, I said this wrong. Let's start again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So here we are. He's blessed. Why? He doesn't walk with counsel from those people that are ungodly. He doesn't stand in the pathway of sinners, and then he doesn't sit down like he's sitting with them and fellowshipping with them in the seat of the scornful. Can you see the staircase effect? Climatic. Here the principal idea in the first line is repeated and expanded more and more to complete the thought. This is the next form, climatic uh, parallelism. Psalm 29.1, give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give what? Give what? The next phrase says, give unto the Lord glory and strength. That's the answer. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. That, what are we supposed to give? Uh, and then the next line answers that, glory and strength. Okay then, so looking at the next form of parallelism, we have introverted parallelism. The first line is closely related in thought to the fourth line and the second line to the third line. For example, consider Psalm 91.14, verse 4. Because he has set his love upon me, it says note line 4, Therefore I will deliver him, note line three, I will set him on high, note line two, because he has known my name, note line one. See, they all relate to different lines, okay? Uh, the next form is contrasted parallelism. The first line is on, in the contrast to the second line. Let's look at Psalm 1-6, Psalm 1-6. But he knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. See, righteousness, he knows their way, the ungodly are going to perish. You know, that's contrasted there. It's often interesting to note how creative the Hebrew poets were as they composed their poetry using thought rhyme rather than word rhyme. In some cases, it even helps in interpreting difficult expressions or phrases. Another characteristic of Hebrew poetry is a lack of poetic rhythm. The lack of poetic rhythm. Much of our modern poetry, especially in the English language, has standard measures of identifiable rhythm, as is in the poem, 
Mary had a little lamb, little lamb, little lamb. You know, that's there's a rhythm to it. With the Hebrews, however, the art of poetic rhythm was of secondary consideration. Some suggest that it is not likely that the Hebrew poets had standard measures worked out and carefully defined. Again, their focus, like I've said before, was on thought rhyme, not word rhyme. Finally, an important characteristic of Hebrew poetry is the use of figurative expression. The Psalms are filled with figurative expressions, and as such, it's important to keep certain principles of interpretation in mind. We're talking about typology. We're talking about something that represents something else. So let's get into this. The figure must, number one, the figure must be accepted and dealt with as a figure of speech, not as a literal statement. For example, in Psalm 18.31, the Lord is called a rock. He's like a rock. I mean, with strength, with the substance he gives us, with the support he gives us. But he's not literally a rock, is he? Is he? He's not literally a rock. And there's another one that uh, ministers used to make fun of. You know, uh, he will hide me under the shadow of his wings. Well, is God a bird then? You know. Psalm 51.4, David says, Against you and you only have I sinned. He's confessing his sin of adultery with Bathsheba in which he sinned. But it's not only against the Lord, even though he says that here. He, he did sin against Uriah. He, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against his nation. But in expressing such deep sorrow and grief for his sin, it's like he's zeroing in on God and emphasizing that. It's a figurative expression of hyperbole in the writing here. We must be careful and not develop doctrinal beliefs, you know, God is a bird, God is a rock, upon what many, or may, I mean, be figurative expressions not intended to be taken literally. Number two about figurative language. The figure must be interpreted in light of its meaning, in the setting in which it was used. For example, in Psalm 23, 4, we find the well-known phrase, the valley of the shadow of death. It's not uncommon to hear this phrase used at funerals uh, when people have died. In the setting of this psalm, however, it does not mean that. We see David as a shepherd boy when he wrote this, talking about, you know, shepherding as his sheep, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he's talking about a valley uh, of death in that the sheep could fall off the cliff if he wasn't watching them, or even he as the shepherd could fall. So, you know, he had to watch them from falling into, into death, into that, you know, into the crevice or down the mountain. Uh, let's look on. The, the language of similar sounds, that's another uh, wonderful truth about the psalm. Psalm 132 gives us examples. Broad, guttural sounds like a dirge you know, that are in that psalm. Words that sound like what they mean. Such words we find like cuckoo, splash, ping pong. Here's a Hebrew word, kolbeseter. Think of our word, copacetic. They mean about the same. Leviathan in the Hebrew, Leviathan in the English, sounds like. The Hebrew language is a language of sound that impacts our feelings and emotions. Amen. Amen. That's what the Psalms are about. We want to get connected to our emotions of our heart, right? Emotion was part of the Hebrew communication. 
it should be likewise for us. Our communication has been found to be 78% nonverbal. Wow. Uh, let's look at another point. Lyrical poetry, poetry based on lyrics. The language is a perfect fit for the action. It gives great pictures. Yes, that's a real truth. Why I love the Hebrew language is it just paints wonderful pictures, does it not? Broad concepts and distinct sounds. Look at Psalm 110 to find some of this. Appreciating these characteristics of Hebrew poetry can help the Psalms become more meaningful, and your understanding these characteristics can also help in avoiding misinterpreting the Psalms to teach doctrines the psalmist had no intention of teaching. Uh, the Psalms are such a wonderful book. God wants us to be connected in our devotions, have our heart connected to Him in worship and praise and prayer. And, and, and what I am calling Psalms, the primer of praise, prayer, and worship, you know. Uh, you, you need to get, you know, when you're in there, how can you help but not get your emotions involved, you know. I think I, uh, I, 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 there's a story I know about a young lady who, you know, we should go, I think I shared that before, the things she's going through. She'll page through the Psalms, you know, as a, one of her devotional uh, ideas at times until she comes a song, uh, across a psalm that um, coincides with what she's feeling. And she prays that and meditates upon that. So for today, we're going to be done with part one, an introduction to the Psalms. Next week, we'll start on more background material of the Psalms. So thank you again for joining us on the Kingdom Corner podcast. Have a blessed, abundant week. Thank you for joining us for another great discussion on the Kingdom Corner, hosted by Matt Geib. Remember to click the subscribe button so you can be notified of each new episode as it's released. To enjoy an even deeper dive into God's Word, check out Matt's new devotional book, Searching for Significance, a devotional journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. Learn more and even hear from Matt himself on the devotional website, significanceacademy.com. As always, thank you for being a part of the Kingdom Corner.